Everybody hear me okay? okay. We'll pick back up where we left off last week, which uh, technically was really at the beginning of uh, chapter 3 of the book of John. And uh, of course what we're focusing on here in chapter 3 is one passage that I believe that most all of us are, are familiar with uh, to quite a measure. Uh, it's a very, very familiar because uh, of our studies in, in, you know, throughout, our, throughout our experiences. And uh, one that's, that's very meaningful to us that all of us need to, um, you know, really focus in on it. So what we're going to try to do is do kind of a little bit of a deep dive into this, uh, to this dialogue between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus to the extent that our time permits. And uh, uh, we, we probably won't get through this uh, uh, today. And we'll pick back up again uh, at whatever point we leave, leave off today. We'll pick back up next week. Uh, some, just, just some preliminary comments before we get going. I uh, appreciate uh, Matt reading uh, our passage here that we'll be focused on, so I'm not going to take a lot of time rereading that. You know, I may reread some of the verses as we'll go along. But um, John uh, chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. That, that, that meant that, of course, he held some sort of chief office, uh, and that was probably within the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. And so he had some sort of position. I don't know that you would necessarily call it a position of authority, uh, but he had some sort of office or position. And uh, we, we talked a little bit in terms of preliminary things last week about how people have speculated, well, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Uh, and we don't really know. Uh, we just uh, can, can just uh, you know, speculate about that, that uh, maybe he was real busy during the day, uh, and it was more convenient for him to come at night, or likely uh, he was he was cautious. He was concerned about being seen with Jesus, and so he came by the cover of night to to talk to Jesus. Uh, but the bottom line is this: no, we don't know. We don't know why he came at night. Uh, he just did, and, and Scripture records that. And he introduces himself to Jesus with a a, a testimony. He says, Rabbi. We know that thou art a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do these signs that thou doest except God be with him. And so what we see here is that Nicodemus is not questioning the, the authenticity of Jesus and the, the miracles that he performed. He understood that those miracles were a manifestation of the power of God. And, and as we, I think, mentioned last week, we, we have, you know, no indication that, that Nicodemus wavered from that belief uh, that he expressed there. Uh, as we, we see him appear a couple of more times, you know, in the scriptures we'll talk about. For instance, he, he proved himself to be a, a man, a very fair man, uh, uh, with, when, when he defended Jesus over in chapter 7. Of course, we'll, we'll talk about that in detail when we get to chapter 7. Um, and so far as uh, knowing whether or not uh, Nicodemus actually truly confessed uh, his faith and responded to the gospel's call, we don't we don't know that. Uh, uh, but the fact that he came in the latter part of John uh, with uh, 
Joseph to ask for the body of Jesus, that's a testimony to him as well that, that he's still, there he is at the end of Jesus' ministry, still there. Uh, he had not wavered, uh, if you will. And so we mentioned this is kind of where we, where we stopped off last week. That, Of course, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. There can be no faith where God has not spoken. And so, as we look at Nicodemus, we're, we, it, it, it's evident that he was convinced that Jesus was a teacher from God. And, and, he, and he wanted to learn more about that. He wanted to know about this teaching about the kingdom. And um, Of course, our, our series that we're teaching here uh, is based on... Um, what we find on a website called BibleTalkTV.tv. Uh, TV. Uh, the speaker that, that does these lessons is uh, Brother Massalongo, and uh, uh, he, he made a comment. I know some of you are maybe going and listening to that. You can go listen to these same lessons. Uh, I'm not repeating them verbatim. I'm using his, his PowerPoints and, and my own comments along the line here. Uh, but he did make a comment in, in his lesson, this particular lesson, that, you know, we, we think about it. You're Nicodemus, and here is Jesus, and you're seeing these miracles, and you're a Jew. And, and kind of give the guy a little bit of a break. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy to grasp, being in his position. You know? So you have, to, you have to think about that. John... The Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Mark 1.15, Jesus began his preaching in, in that gospel by saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what, what was Nic Nicodemus interested in? He was interested in the kingdom of God. Uh, in verse 3, uh, yeah, verse... This is verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, Jesus really doesn't appear to, to wait on Nicodemus to express what's on his mind because he said to him, Jesus said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I just, again, I don't know if any of you uh, as we've talked about this, are going to that website and listening to Brother Massalongo's lessons or not. And I just want to, in case you are, I do have a comment or two I'd like to make. He speaks of uh, regeneration. And, it, and he says here at this point is where Jesus begins to teach Nicodemus regeneration. And I just, I had a little bit of a concern. That's why I wanted to bring that up. And Paul's here and just kind of explain my, my line of thought as to what is meant by regeneration. You know, we, we have to be careful that, that we explain that and that, that you understand that because there's some heresies out there. Uh, and so we want to be careful and not say that, talk about regeneration and, and not talk about this. There's one called baptismal regeneration. And basically, what it, what it is, is the idea that there's some sort of miraculous power in the water. Uh, and that power in that water produces your salvation or regeneration. Wayne Jackson wrote this. Um, 
The notion that baptism is a sacrament which has a sort of mysterious innate power to remove the contamination of sin, independent of personal faith and a volitional submission to God's plan, is plainly at odds with biblical teaching. And, and we go, you know, we look, look at, you know, we examine the Old Testament, you know, it serves as our tutor, Galatians 3.24, uh, and it contains things, quote, for our learning, Romans 15, 4, and it provides us instruction regarding this principle. And let's think about some, some old, an Old Testament example, and that's Naaman, the leper who was told by Elijah to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And what did he do? He, he refused to do that. Why? Because that's an old, dirty, muddy old river. And he didn't want to do that. Uh, but, but when he did... When he eventually did and he obeyed, he was healed. Was there some mysterious power in that muddy water of the Jordan River? No, there wasn't. Naaman was healed, why? Because he did exactly what God commanded him to do, the exact way that God commanded him to do it. That's why he was healed. Okay, no miraculous power in the water, and we want to be sure that we qualify that. Now, a little later on, in his lesson, Brother Mazzalongo brings that up to some extent, but I wanted to do it right now. I didn't want to just use that term and us, you know, possibly confuse it or someone listening by way of internet, the internet confuse it. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight reads this When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. The point we want to make is this, that it doesn't matter about your power that you hold, the position that you hold, whatever training you had, whatever your traditions are, all that is of no account. You have to be reborn. You have to be baptized for salvation. So the re regeneration that, that he's speaking of is spiritual regeneration. Spiritual regeneration, a new birth. And, and that has to be experienced by everyone who, who, who enters the kingdom. I wanted to read to you, I don't have a slide, and you, you can turn to your Bibles. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so if we look, look at this passage I just read to you, the context of it reveals several key things to us. We are not saved by works of righteousness that we do by ourselves according to any plan or course of action that, 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 that we devise. I think of people, you know, I've been to, to funerals where eulogies have been given for people who were, who were not members of the church. and They speak of, well, this was a good person, did all this good stuff, as if that conveys them you know, into eternity uh, in a saved position. Well, it doesn't. We are saved by 
quote, the washing of regeneration. What is the washing of regeneration? What is it? Baptism. Exactly as Peter 3.21 states. It is, baptism is excluded from from all works of human righteousness that, that we could come up with, that we can read in Scripture and that we can come up with ourselves. It is itself a work of God. And it's required and it's approved by God. And it's necessary for salvation. Jesus states this right here. He states it again, like for instance Mark... 16, 15, 16. You have to be baptized to be saved. And for those of you who may be in here, and I don't think there's anybody in here, but maybe some listening by way of internet who want to argue that with me, read the scripture. You just have to read the scripture. Jesus himself said it. It's not, not something, you know, originates from man. Jesus said it. When you're raised from that watery grave in baptism, it is according to the working of God, Colossians 2.12. It's not a man-made thing, a man-made plan. And, and you can't, cannot suggest that baptism is some type of meritorious work of human beings. When we are baptized, we are completely passive and that can hardly have, and in that state, we could have hardly performed any kind of work. Instead, what we've done is, is we've obeyed God through saving faith. Our works of God were belief, repentance, confession, and then baptism, all commanded by the Scripture uh, of one who is going to receive this gift of salvation, the gift of God, Romans 6.23. All right, moving along uh, to verse 4 of chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Jesus goes on to explain that, that the new birth was not a fleshly birth. And of course, think again, we put ourselves back in the position of Nicodemus. This is, a, this is not necessarily an, an easy concept. We have the benefit of Scripture, the full Scripture, you know, to understand it. He didn't. And so, so it's a concept that he has to, has to, to kind of line up in his mind. And he, you know, Jesus emphatically states in verse 5 that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I'll digress back to where I, what I just said. If, if anybody in here or anybody is listening by way of internet that's going to profess that you don't have to be baptized to be saved, listen to what Jesus Christ your Savior just said when we read it there. What did he just say? Unless you're born of the Spirit and the water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I would challenge anybody who's, who wants to say that you know faith only is, is good enough for salvation. It's not. Scripture teaches otherwise. And so we look at what, the way Nicodemus took this. He took it literally. Um, and he says, well, how, how can you do that? How can, how can someone, you know, who's old be physically born again? And in, and in, in verses, uh, uh, subsequent verses, then Jesus gives a direct answer. The two expressions, must be born again, 
and born of water and of spirit, they mean the same thing. The birth concerns the heart, the inner man, not the physical man, the heart. And then, you know, as we mentioned, uh, in Mark 16, 16, Jesus speaks in very, very plain language. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So, the power... See, I'm behind myself. The power of regeneration is in the Holy Spirit, and the place where that regeneration takes place is in baptism. It's in baptism. So... Let's remember again also, as I think I mentioned maybe last week, and I've, I've done it before in other classes, that the concept of the kingdom of God that the Jews had was that, that it, it would be some physical kingdom. Uh, they thought the kingdom would, would be reestablished here on earth. And so, so when, when Jesus speaks of entering the kingdom of God, put that in the context of what Nicodemus might be say, you know, thinking. He, he didn't really understand what that meant. He was thinking of his concept, which was of uh, a, a physical kingdom. And so we're going into verses 8 and 9. 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, we learn that there is a, is a fleshly birth when we are born into this world. Of course there is. We know that. And Nicodemus knew that. And, and also, though, that there is a, a, a spiritual birth. <clears throat> uh, when we enter the kingdom of God, or when we, or when we enter the church also. Verse eight, in verse 8, Jesus is speaking of the, the same birth when, when he's using the term born of the Spirit. The born of water and Spirit is the same as to be born of the Spirit. He's not speaking about two different things. He's not speaking about two different births. It's not a, a visible, physical birth, but an invisible, spiritual birth. And it is the Spirit that is changed. And that, again, just giving... Nicodemus, a little bit of benefit, as we might say, the benefit of a doubt, that concept had to be very difficult for him. And, and he was a Jew, and, and, he was, and, and in their thinking, they thought they were guaranteed salvation. They thought that. So the concept that he had to change in order to receive salvation, that was probably a bit, of, bit difficult to grasp. Uh, particularly he being a prominent Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin and a, and a leader of some sort. And, and just put yourself in this place. Think of all your religious training, your study. Uh, and, it, and here you are, uh, and you reach this point and you realize it's not accomplished what you thought. It doesn't work. So we, we can understand how Nicodemus may have felt when he was, when he was having this conversation with Jesus. And, and think of this also. He is the older person. He's the older Pharisee trained. Uh, he's an elder. He's a scholar. He's a scribe. And he's being told by the younger rabbi, no, 
You have to change. You have to be changed. You have to be born again. So Nicodemus understood that. He understood there has to be a change. But he knew physical rebirth was not possible. So how does that change come about? Uh, Brother Massalongo, if you've listened to that lesson, also there's some good information in there, and I thought good examples. Uh, he, he speaks of his background, which was Catholicism. He was raised in Catholicism. And he speaks of a, of a brother who converted him. And, and as they were discussing Scripture and doctrine, uh, this brother told him that all he really needed to do was read his Bible. Just read your Bible. And see if what you read in your Bible lines up with what you did. And he said, that was really what converted me. He said, when I went to my Bible for myself, started reading, started studying, compared it to what I had been taught, what I, what I had done, he said, that was it. He said, I understood what he was saying. And I was converted. Nicodemus wanted to know the truth. And so he humbled himself. He did come by night, and we, you know, we talked about that earlier. We don't know exactly why. It could be that, that he didn't want to be seen, so... Maybe that crosses over into not being humble, not having humility to some degree. But he did humble himself. He was obvious he wanted to learn. He wanted to know something which Jesus was teaching and something that Jesus was doing just rang true with Nicodemus. And he, he wanted to know what that was. And I think that's, a, that's an extremely important lesson for all of us. We cannot go forward in our spiritual understanding and in our learning unless we humble ourselves and are willing to be taught. James 4, 6. We've got to be willing to be taught. And the grace He gives to the humble is this. It's the ability to understand His Word. You know, look at the Bible, have the humility to obey what the Bible says, rather than your traditions, rather than maybe your previous training or what your mother or father may have believed, or your aunt or your uncle or your grandparents. Look at the Bible. To go forward, you have to leave something behind. To go forward, you have to leave something behind. Verses 10 and 11. We see that Nicodemus is, is still confused. Um, about this spiritual birth. So in verse 10 he says, Jesus, Jesus says to him, Are you the teacher? And you don't know these things? Jesus is kind of saying, it, it isn't knowledge you're lacking, it's faith. You know, here, here Nicodemus is, he's like many other Jews, he thought that the seed of Abraham would occupy these prominent positions in the earthly kingdom. He believed. He believed in the miracles he saw. 
but he had trouble believing in the one who made the miracles. Yes, Larry? Exactly, yeah. And that's the point Jesus is making to him. He's basically challenging him. I'm sorry. Here's the point with the Holy Spirit and baptism. Mm-hmm. Death is separation of body and spirit. When we're baptized into death, Jesus, we're dying to ourselves. What makes us alive to God is us at the point where the Holy Spirit comes within us, mm-hmm. bringing us to life. Mm-hmm. So if one's saved without being baptized, he's saved without the Holy Spirit coming within him to bring him to life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, in essence, uh, Jesus in verses you know, 12 and 13 is rebuking Nicodemus by telling him that if he did not believe earthly things when he asked him, then how is he going to believe heavenly things? You know, we cannot be saved in sin. We must be saved from sin. From sin. And in verse 13, Jesus speaks of having, you know, their ascended uh, um, from heaven. Jesus can speak of how to enter heaven because he came down from heaven. He says, I'm not, I'm not quoting anyone to you here. I'm speaking of, to you of how to get to heaven because I came from heaven. So the power of the Spirit is ignited by faith. The only faith that will change us is faith in Jesus Christ. Verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus uses a powerful example from the Old Testament, going back to Numbers 21. We're not going to take the time to go read that. Uh, you can read that. Go to, go to Numbers 21. He, he reminds Nicodemus of the serpent in the wilderness, which was erected by Moses to deliver the Israelites from the plague of the serpents, the fiery serpents. Um, the snake represented... An offering for sin. And just a little background. The Israelites were being disobedient. 
They were complaining about the manna. They, they, you know, God was providing that to them. They didn't like it, apparently. They were tired of it, maybe. They were complaining. They were disobeying. So God sent the fiery serpents. Uh, and then uh, uh, when, they, when they turned back to God, he instructed Moses to create the, the serpent on the pole and all they had to do was to look at it and they would be healed from, from the snake bites. But many of them died because of that. So, in the story, we're able to see the spiritual principles at work. There is diso- you know, disobedience. Disobedience is sin. It's, I think that's, you know, I think about that today. Is that not one of the hardest things to convey to people today in our culture that, that we live in, in this me culture that doesn't want to admit that they're wrong about anything? You know? Uh, there was a time, I think, when people understood what this disobedience was, but, but you, you know, that, of course, they, they may not have cared and they went ahead and did what they wanted to anyway, but they understood what disobedience was. Nowadays, you, you, you get people arguing that disobedience is not sin. Uh, as we've talked in, in recent times, take the homosexual community. They'll argue with you. It's not sin. I saw something on the internet today where there's a predominant denomination uh, in this, I guess it's worldwide, that's splitting over that. A denomination that is splitting. I, I guess I could go ahead and say it's the Methodist uh, over homosexuality. I'm like, do they own all own Bibles? You know, do they read their Bibles? Uh, but they are splitting over that. There's some that want to accept it, even let people be ministers in their in their congregations, their churches, and then there's others that reject it and, and they parted ways. I got an answer for that. Okay. A certain president spoke up and said we, we need to accept them. And that, to me, you might disagree with me, but that's what's the turning point right there in my mind. Now, granted, they were gaining footholds. I don't... But, but the real turn in the acceptance of it was when that man stood up and did it. It's just like the floodgate opened. I mean, yeah. and you saw it. I mean, politically you saw it, but you saw it in 
you know, uh, business, you know, and commercials and, you know, companies that have storefronts. I mean, it just like, boom. And companies and government agencies especially, you have to have annual training. You know, granted, it's computer-based, mm -hmm. but a lot of these companies, you know, they have it in their policies and procedures on mm -hmm. how you treat these people. Everybody, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. It's because of the leniency that's that's given. That's the point of that. Uh, but I know in my company, it, I don't think it's fear of that necessarily. They're gun ho. Our upper management is gun ho and supportive. And um, I'm not trying to suggest one man was responsible for the whole thing because what happened was a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon. A lot of influential people at that point, um, but uh, and a lot there's of, you know, you know, companies, especially here, are owned by you know China, Japan. Mm -hmm. that, and they have, they don't believe they, mm -hmm. you know, they don't have the same mm -hmm. problem as we do about it mm -hmm. over there. They understand it's an American thing, so they just right. do it for the American. You know, there, there's a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. And those folks are going to stand before God. And all we can do is preach the scripture, preach the truth. And that's what we're doing. But um, the spiritual principle is that if you disobey God's law, you die. And. and I mean, you die in the sense that you're separated from God. And if, if you don't do something about that, ultimately you will be separated in eternity from God. That's, that's the thing. That's what death is. Not being struck with some illness or having a heart attack and falling over and you, your heart stops. The penalty for sin is suffering and death. That's what the death is. Okay. Now, um, another thing, we'll kind of move on a little bit, and I know we're just about out of time, so we'll, we'll be picking up here in this area next, next week. But salvation is based on a system of faith. And if you, um, if you um, listen to Brother Massalongo's lesson, this particular lesson, he spends some 15 to 20 minutes talking about all the variety of religious systems out in the world and what their concept of salvation is. How, in other words, how you get it and what it, you know, what it actually is. I, I, that's a lot of time to take up in class and go through a lot of things. So I want to direct you to go do that. You know, take time to go find this, this website, lesson number seven, and listen to that. And... Um, it's interesting. It's, it's very applicable, but we just, I'm just going to decide not to take class time to do that. The point is that all of these other religious systems base their salvation on something like a system of work or a, a system of law or a system of rituals that you keep. 
Christianity is this. Salvation is based on a system of faith. system of faith. The salvation from sin and death is achieved when God provides an atonement or a payment for sin and then man believes and he trusts that that God's atonement is going to remove his sins and and therefore save him. You know, if we were talking about the example out of Numbers 21, the Old Testament story of the fiery serpent, they were disobedient, they were murmuring, the people were sinful. The penalty was inflicted by that poisonous snake or that those poisonous snakes that, that, that God sent. The atonement was represented by this bronze figure of a snake being placed up on a pole, and then the response of faith and trust was expressed when, when the people looked up upon that, that bronze snake that was attached to the pole. They didn't say anything. They didn't touch anything. Uh, they didn't do anything other than um, what Moses said. Moses said this. He said, if you're inflicted, if you're bitten and you're poisoned, and if you'll go look at that, at that serpent, you'll be saved. You'll, you'll survive. And just to sum up, and we'll pick back up here next week, Jesus is looking ahead to His crucifixion. He's... He's establishing that as, as God's final payment for atonement for all sins is His crucifixion. The sins are all the acts of disobedience that everybody has done over all of time. He was the atonement. He, 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 he was the, he was the, I'm sorry, the, the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the perfect man that was sacrificed for our sin. So let's stop there. Um, We'll pick back up. Snake represented an offering for sin. And that's what Jesus was. Thank you for your comments this morning. We'll, We'll stop right there.